Welcome to the Gather Influence podcast. It is our great honor to welcome you into some of the most catalytic conversations happening in our nation around the female voice. My name is Vanessa Hoyes from Montreal and my co-host Kathy Ostapchuk from Toronto and I have the privilege of leading Gather Women. This movement will exist until the female voice can be heard loud and clear in every sphere of influence across our nation. So we invite you into these conversations and we pray they will mobilize you personally, you the listener, you the influencer to champion truth, challenge inequity and in turn change our nation and change our world. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, hey, everyone, welcome to this episode of the Gather Influence podcast. We've had some amazing conversations, studying revelations as we have talked about the voice, voice of the female church in Canada, and so much more. I hope that you've had a chance to listen into the past uh, five episodes. Last week, we had Jason Ballard. It is a good one. Let me tell you, I've listened a few times. And so that one, we are hoping that you will share with your male friends as well as the girls. So today we are taking voice a little bit further. We're actually sharing an opportunity that Aquia Carmichael and I had to use our voices in a really unique and robust context. Aquia Carmichael is a lawyer. She serves on the Gather Women Board of Directors, and we had an opportunity to speak at the Justice Conference back in May. It is a global conference, 11 countries covered, thousands of people tuned in. And here's what we talked about addressing our blind spots, how the church is a hindrance or help in the battle against gender inequity. And you'll hear from this recording that Equia really addressed the fact that a blind spot can be fatal. If you don't see what's coming, um, you can be blindsided by it. And we have not seen the fatal impact of what happens when there is not equity, either for race or for gender in the church. And that's something we really need to have a conversation about. So we talked about the fact that our sightline has been focused on what we can see, the tip of the iceberg, where we claim there is unity for all in the church. However, underneath what we can see is the weighty iceberg itself, systemic gender and race inequity. And these are powerful forces that have always existed despite our professions of oneness in Christ. So Aquia and I myself kind of, we just go there. We address the causes and the consequences of gender and race inequity and how the church can either be a hindrance or help in boldly proclaiming the dignity of all women and all races while supporting them in equal voice and presence in the kingdom. And I know every time we talk about gender equity in the church, we do get the feedback that, are we still talking about this? It's 2021. Are we still talking about this? But you know, at least in Canada, uh, it's a thing. It's a thing. I'm not sure if it's a thing where you are, that gender inequity does exist, particularly in the church, which has a history of hierarchy, perhaps, and not um, making room for women to create confidence to serve in the using of their full kingdom gifts. And so I talk about that a little and Aquia really shares some fascinating information about race inequity. And really our call to action is how do we respond? What does, what is the church's response in this day and age 
to both gender inequity and race inequity. So it's a fascinating conversation. I hope that you're going to love it. Lean in, um, pass this on to any that you know would be interested. And again, the Justice Conference was such a unique opportunity for us. And if you can find access to it, thejusticeconference.org, please go and maybe you can listen in to some of the other fantastic sessions there. But here we go, talking about the blind spot. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Kathy Ostachuk, the co-founder and lead catalyst of Gather. Why I'm here today, why this message, why now, is because I find that working with women uh, is a wonderful opportunity, but so many women say, I don't really do women's things. I don't really like women's things. And I find that women's ministry is often dismissed by the church and in larger circles. And so at Gather, we've taken a real assertive stance to say this conversation needs to be in the middle of the conversations that the church is having, not only in our nation, but around the world. It's important to talk about what we do with women in the church. It's important to talk about what we do with our diverse cultural uh, races in the church and make decisions about that together. So welcome, everyone. It's so nice to have you here today. And hello to everyone. My name is Aquia Carmichael. I'm so uh, pleased to be with all of you. I am a lawyer by profession and uh, also a, a board member at Gather. Uh, so Kathy and I work uh, together quite closely. In terms of uh, the message that I'm uh, bringing today in the conversation that we're having today, uh, I think it's just so timely. I, I think it's something that has been a long time coming. I'm a child of the 80s. I, I was, you know, a teenager in the 80s and, you know, discussions around race and uh, the church. I, I just don't ever remember having those kinds of discussions, but I do believe that, you know, what we are in the kingdom for a time such as now and, you know, God and his wisdom and, and, and understanding knew that this was the right time to, to be having the kinds of discussions that we're having. And so I'm just so thrilled to be a part of it and really excited for what God's going to do on this So we want to have your interaction with us. We don't want you to be strangers. So that's what the chat is for. We want to start off with a series of true and false questions and just see what you're thinking a little bit about these uh, topics of gender inequity and race inequity. So Quia, why don't you start us off? Right. So I'll do the first one. So uh, the uh, Reverend Martin Luther King wrote letter from, from a Birmingham jail in 1963 in response to the racist behavior of white segregationists. Is this true or false? Okay, someone came up with the right answer. There was an answer that it was written to uh, white moderates, and that is correct. In fact, this letter was written uh, in 1963. Obviously, Dr. Martin, the Reverend Martin Luther King had uh, been protesting segregation and was jailed as a result of that. And he actually started the letter, it's addressed, dear fellow clergymen. So not only was he not writing to a white segregationist, he was actually writing to uh, the clergy. And so it, it, it's quite an interesting letter in terms of uh, his, uh, you know, some people said frustration. I think, um, you know, his sadness, his disappointment, and he does use that word disappointment in the letter a few times with the response of the church. Uh, to segregation, to racism, to economic disparity between Blacks and whites in the U.S. 
Uh, if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. It's, it's quite an eye opener. And one of the things I found most interesting about uh, reading this letter was that it was written in 1963, you know, almost 60 years ago. But the, the issues that he's talking about and dealing with are just as prevalent and relevant today as they were then, which means we've got a lot of work to do. But by, by God's grace, I believe we'll be able to um, move forward in these discussions and in, in what God's called us to do in this area of race and uh, racism. That was a great first question, especially since we didn't really know, half of us didn't know what the answer was. So I learned a lot there. Second one, the higher you go in leadership in the church as a female, the less likely you are to experience systematic gender bias, true or false? Okay, false, 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 okay. Yeah, so either personal experience or you're answering for a friend, I'm not sure, but Absolutely. The higher you go in leadership in the church as a female, the more likely you are to experience systematic gender bias. And this is from work done by Katie Cole, Developing Female Leaders. Also, because the pyramid gets smaller, there's less room at the top. And so if, if there are less women leaders in leadership anyway in the church, when you get to the top and it's fairly tight, there will be less, less female leaders and they will experience more gender bias. Okay, on to the next question. Women apply for promotion only when they meet 100% of the qualifications. Men apply when they meet 50%, true or false? Yeah, you got this one. Absolutely, it's true. Unfortunately, it's true. And this came from a survey from The Atlantic uh, that was posted online and lots of great stats in there. But this is not only true in the corporate world, but in the church as well. And so interesting reason there for why we may not be seen as frequently on staff of churches or in the leadership positions. Let's try the next one. Women working in Christian organizations show the highest levels of confidence than in any other context, with women's confidence rising within one year of moving from another organization to work in a church or Christian ministry. True or false? No idea. False, false, false. Yeah. This is actually the opposite is true. I was part of a women's uh, leadership development organization and we did research all over the world. Women working in Christian organizations show the lowest levels of confidence than in any other context with our confidence being diminished within one year and actually plummeting within one year of moving from another organization to work in a church or Christian ministry. Something to think about right there. Okay, let's go to our last true and false. Black women make up only 20% of leadership positions in major organizations, true or false? Yeah, absolutely, you've got this. Black women make up only 9% of leadership positions in major organizations. And another member of our board, uh, Claire Adogbo, has written a book with some of her colleagues called The 9%, proving this very fact. And so that number is way off, but not a surprise and thus this conversation here today. So Kwia, talk to us about the blind spot. Right, right. So, you know, Kathy and I um, chatted about uh, this, uh, you know, presenting at this seminar, having a discussion around uh, gender and uh, race and equity. And the thought that really came to me or the word that came to me was blind spot. And I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with 
the, the term blind spot. And, you know, essentially a blind spot is, is the place where your view is obstructed. And when I think about blind spot, the first thing that comes to my mind, I go back to when I was 16, which was more than 30 decades. <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I'm really dating myself more than three decades ago. And I remember being 16 and taking driving lessons uh, with a man named Atwal, who's very good. And he would say to me, you know, before you change lanes, you've got to turn your head and make sure that it's all clear. And that's your blind spot. You can't see your blind spot. So you've got to turn to make sure that there are no cars in the way and then you can, you know, change lanes. And I never forgot that. Uh, and the reason it stuck with me was because, you know, the point of a blind spot is we can't see everything all the time. And in the context of driving, not paying attention to your blind spot or, or not being cognizant of it can result in very, very deadly um, outcomes if you're not careful. So I thought about that with regards to the context of race. Uh, again, Kathy and I had discussions on gender inequity and the idea that, you know, we're living in a time where there's so many issues, you know, all of us, this past year with the, a lot of the race issues that have gone on, the gender issues are ongoing. Uh, we've had lots to think about, lots to see in the news, lots to talk with one another about in our church families and church organizations. There have been lots of shakeups and, and differing responses. And so I think for the church, if we're going to carry the call that we've been given as ministers of reconciliation, it's so important that we pay attention to our blind spots. It's so important that we understand what they are, that we're cognizant of them, that we're paying attention to them, and that we're making the necessary adjustments so that we're able to fulfill our call and we're driving in the right lane towards the goals that um, have been set before us. Uh, that's brilliant. So we're going to start by talking about gender inequity. That's sort of the world that I'm living in right now. And I have a question for you I want to think about because I'm going to come back and maybe ask um, what you think about this and what your answer is. If the doors of opportunity open wide for women to walk into leadership positions historically held by men in the church right now, they open wide right now, would they do so without hesitation? And why or why not? So I want you to be thinking about the answer to that as we talk a little bit more about gender inequity. And I've talked, I've kind of paired this with the Titanic because talk about a huge blind spot. The captain of the ship on the Titanic saw what he wanted to see. He saw maybe a, an iceberg far off in the distance, but not paying attention to everything that lay beneath. And when something is suppressed for so long over such a long period of time, it actually gains in momentum and it wreaks more damage and is fatal more so than anybody ever thought. So really not paying attention to these issues, which the church has not for so long, is more fatal to the future and the flourishing of the church than I think we think is possible. So let's move into uh, this topic of gender inequity. I'm gonna be coming at you fairly quickly because I do want to cover and give you enough information to sort of reflect and form your own opinion on where your blind spots may be or in the church you're attending or in the country that you live in. 
So I'm going to start with three women, three stories. Every year, the largest gathering in Canada of the church is called One Conference, and it's held in British Columbia. And we try and bring the women's voice into it and talk about what does it look like for women to lead. And we actually have a seminar saying, can women lead, which is unbelievable that in 2020, 2021, we're still asking this question. A lot of people think, of course they can, of course they can. I mean, they're CEOs of major banks, major corporations in our nation, but in the church, we're still asking, can they lead? So we put that question out there. And one woman came up after she had a PhD, she was teaching at the local university and teaching leadership at the local university. She was in tears because her denomination was not allowing her to be an elder in her own church. So That is one story. Another woman raised her hand and said, well, if I offer my full gifting to the church, I'm actually in danger of being disobedient to Paul's writings in scripture. And I don't want to be disobedient. And so the fear there was palpable. The third woman said, I am only called to raise up my husband as a leader and my son as a leader. I am not to be a leader myself. These are are three women in our nation, in a first world country, in 2020 saying, no, it's not possible. My own story is such that I've always tried to keep a middle ground and say, well, it may not have been great for me, but future generations will have it better. And I could no longer hide my voice or silence my voice. I had an experience in a church where I was hired only after the male person in that job was gone and I could only be paid an hourly wage. I could not have a title on the door or any recognition or authority in my job. So just to be paid hourly instead of actually having a real role in the church and because they were all male deacons, um, it was it was a challenge to be there. Our story, well, hmm, our story needs to represent something different, especially since Jesus comes on the scene in the culture of strong hierarchy, strong patriarchy, and says, you are not to lead like this. The guardians of the horizons were unsettled by the way that Jesus invited women into active participation. And women in today's world, both those who suffer oppression and those who enjoy unprecedented opportunities would find Jesus' interactions with women irresistible life-giving and profoundly healing. And I wonder if those are some of what's missing in our current church environment. Men and women are strategic to God's vision for the world, and he entrusts the whole earth to their stewardship. But the current story is profoundly disturbing. By discarding, trafficking, oppressing, and destroying the daughters of God, the world, and maybe the church also, is recklessly self-destructing. And evidence is present in every culture that the sky is falling when millions of those whom God created to hold it up are missing. Women do hold up half the sky. And we are half the church. We are more than half the church. We are in this nation, 52% of the church. If women hold up half the sky, what can half the church accomplish? God is shaking his daughters awake and summoning us to engage His vision for us is affirming and raises the bar for all of us. We can't settle for less. We have work to do. Our compass is fixed on Jesus. We may not have titles, position, or power in the eyes of others, but leadership, I believe, is in the female DNA. 
the call to rule and subdue places kingdom responsibility on our shoulders. Conflict draws us out. And as we answer God's call, our brothers will be the first ones to benefit. So what's the problem? We've talked a little bit about the pain. Some women, my story, our story is a church. So let's go on and talk about the problem. Well, the problem is threefold. It's not just my problem. It's not just the problem with the man. And it's not just the problem with the church. It's all three. So let's go ahead and see how this works. I love to see this as a triangle. So what's my problem? My problem is I may be suffering from low self-confidence. And I want to talk a little bit about that. What is the high cost of my problem and the problem for many female leaders, which is low self-confidence? More than 60% of women leaders polled in one study said that the biggest single obstacle they had to overcome was lacking the confidence to speak up. A study of 4,000 boys and girls found that the greatest single barrier to leadership reported by girls was self-perception. And between grades three and eight, most gifted girls' self-concept declines. And by adolescence, many gifted girls suffer from a marked lack of self-confidence. So we are starting out of the gate into these roles severely behind already. Uh, there was a study by Himes and Murphy, and they found that women not only diminish their self-esteem through negative self-talk, they also fail to compensate for it by building themselves up when they experience success. So they usually attribute their accomplishments to factors outside themselves. And I know for me, I've heard when somebody has said that was great worship leading or that was a great message, I go, oh, like that was God. That, that actually wasn't me. You tell my husband the same thing and go like, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. So there's a difference in just the way we're wired. There's a difference in the way that we are raised. Therefore, a lot of women feel that they uh, are suffering from imposter syndrome when a woman's external power exceeds her own self-esteem or ability to receive that power. Power and voice are also closely linked. This is why we can become tongue-tied when we're talking to leaders that are above us. And many women, when we're finally given the floor, we struggle to find our voice. The years of having one's voice suppressed that precede being given the floor in a meeting vastly outweigh the opportunities given. And that just means we haven't had the opportunities to grow confidence in our voice. So that's a problem. And then we can talk about the fact that we may not have experience verbalizing how the Bible and theology makes it possible for us to step into leadership. That biblical stories and the testimony that we've heard from the pages of scripture have had a claim on our own identity construction. And we know the stories are there, but in the pulpit over time, we do not hear the stories of women in the Bible. We often just hear them in the Sunday school room. And I've also realized the importance of my gender in shaping the way that I read scripture. The truth is that I, as a woman, I'm going to resonate with different aspects of the Bible than men. I'll understand and recognize there haven't been enough women actually interpreting the Bible, being theologians, to bring these resonances into any kind of balance with what is typically and traditionally heard 
in male interpretations. So I don't know if that makes sense to you, but really the whole trajectory of history is not geared in my favor because it has been largely patriarchal. And perhaps we haven't been as ready to marry the words women or woman and theology in the same sentence. Theology is a word that we've associated with scholars, professors, pastors, and men, probably in that order. And as a woman who studies and teaches the Bible myself, I know I've got an obligation to give voice to interpretations that have either not been allowed or not been uttered aloud in the mainstream of the church. In this moment, in this day, in this culture, there's so much empty space that waits to be filled with the beauty, including the messiness of the feminine narrative. And so let's go back to the last slide for a minute. I think that we know it's beautiful, we know that it's messy, and maybe that's why we're scared to go there. And that is the collective me, we. So if I'm internalizing the message, asking me to limit my, my voice and I self-silence, everyone is affected, the men, the church. It's dangerous for anyone to feel, any woman to feel she's living on the periphery when engaging issues of theology and of knowing God. If a woman feels silenced, she's also likely to choose a posture of learned helplessness and dependence. And I can't tell you how many I've met either through gather or through speaking or through coaching where women say, I just get it from my pastor or I get it from my husband. That's all I need to do. I know where to go to get it. Not that they actually have permission to open up the scriptures and to, to be confident enough to, and to walk into um, spheres of influence in their own life. So let me just tell you something that really quickens my spirit every time I hear it. In her book, Half the Church, Carolyn Curtis James brings a threefold challenge to the church. First, what message does the church offer women in the 21st century? Okay, I think we should not be behind the Me Too movement. We should have been ahead of it. We should be leading the way if we are elevating the value of every human being as Jesus did. The world needs a gospel vision of relationships between men and women. Second, what will the church do to address the rampant suffering of women throughout our world? Will we join together in taking the lead in global advocacy on behalf of the widow, the trafficked, the marginalized and oppressed? And yes, we're doing it. That's what this conference is all about. But listen, what message are we sending to the world by how we value and mobilize our own daughters? Will the whole church openly benefit from women's gifts and contributions? Or will the body of Christ attempt to fill a, fulfill a mission that dwarfs our resources without the full participation of half the church? What is it costing us when half the church's gifts go untapped? And I don't know if you've asked yourself the question, what is it costing us? We don't see it because we're blind to that question. We look how great we're doing, how numbers are going, how we're using digital technology. You know, what are the millennials doing? But nobody is tracking what is happening with the women. And actually, nobody is tracking what is happening with the women in the church in my nation. And that's part of the reason we want to have these conversations to say, look at us. Look at half of the resources that you can leverage for the flourishing of the church. 
let's just talk a bit about the men. So in the church, it's interesting that um, when I was in seminary, I noticed that 67% of all seminary students were women. But yet, I wonder if you know how the percentage of those women that are actually got jobs on staff at a church. So 60% of seminary students are women. Only 3% of all staff on churches are women. That's a big gap. Where do women go after seminary? Where did they go get a job? With Gather, we try and encourage women. Yes, you know, unwrap your birthright gifts, develop your leadership, develop your voice. But then it's so frustrating because where are they going to go? Which church will call them into ministry? Which church will ordain them? Which church doesn't even have to be a pastor will welcome their full gifting and strengths? So the question is, is it up to the local church or is it up to denominations to make the decisions about women? And do we need the denominational support if you are called in your church to start to change the direction of the big ship that you've been, been on, which is going into an iceberg? Because change is going to come. It's going to come either from outside the church, the culture will tell us how to value our own before we will even decide to value our own. That's a mystery to me. General perceptions in another survey, women generally are more likely than men to express empathy, intuition, and warmth. Well, 60% of women know that we do. Only 25% of men agreed. Men should hold the top national and regional executive positions in a denomination. Well, 70% of men agreed with that. There should be more women in executive staff positions in regional and na national offices of a denomination. Well, 78% of women agreed, yes, there should be more women. And only 45% of men agreed. That's a 30% gap. And that makes a difference. There's so many other more statistics of the reality that is going out there depending on what denomination you are from. And I can tell you a real story happening in my world right now. One of my good friends is an HR consultant. She's got a doctorate. She's brilliant. She's on the board of a very significant, both American and Canadian and global Christian organization. And the chair of the board, she is chair of the search committee. They're hiring a new CEO. And the chair of the board actually said to her, we're only looking for a man. We're only looking for a man. And of course, there's all kinds of things wrong with that statement, but it's a challenge. And so when we talk about the, the male's response, and uh, we can go on to the next slide. So we see that it's a, a female, a male, and a church issue. Here's what the man has to deal with, generally. The status quo. Hmm. It feels good, like it is. Change is hard. Because I have a position on my church. If a woman comes along that's more qualified than me, what will I have to give up? And we are wired more for status quo than we are for change. There was a young girl, she's lead pastor of a huge uh, church here in Canada, a multi-site church. And she said that it was often so clear to her that men were so fearful of her that they, she would not be invited to social outings 
uh, that she would not be invited to study in study groups with the men. She was basically left out of the circle because of fear that she was a woman, just because of fear of gender. And when I talk about the fear, I mean, I've experienced it. How many times have women walk into rooms full of males and just thought, I've got to be here because this will, this is the way it will always be. And when we did a prayer, a national prayer gathering at one conference, I invited men and women uh, pastors to participate. And we had two pastors that came from quite large churches who walked in the room, looked around, saw all women and chose to stay in the room because they knew that that was important. And when I talk about the fight, the biggest misperception is that there is even a battle being waged. We don't even talk about it in the church. It's a sideline. Oh, that's women's ministry. There's no mainstream conversations happening about this in the church. We don't want it. We don't want the messiness. We don't want to get into this. Nobody wants it. Until we take off the blinders and see the gender inequity for what it is, no one's fighting. The arena is empathy, is empty. The arena is empty, except for this one. And thank you all for joining us here today. So what do we say to that? We have to make a proclamation. Somebody needs to make that proclamation. And it's really, the house is on fire, is burning up. And there's a great song by Billie Eilish. Um, and she's talking about abuse, which is a little bit different, but maybe not so much. And, and, and the victim says, how dare you? How could you? Will you only feel bad when they find out? If you could take it all back, try not to abuse your power. And sometimes we have to use our voices like it's a burning house, not just like it's another ordinary conversation. How dare you? How could you? But how will you make the change? Two things, educate male leaders on sensitivity training, educate the church. And second, hold leaders accountable when they violate boundaries especially important when they're taking on gender biases. Clearly define how we will treat one another regardless of gender and make sure that accountability has consequences. And then of course, how did he, well, that's Jesus. He firmly and consistently reinforced human equality by spending a lot of time in relationships with women, engaging them, recruiting them and mobilizing them for his kingdom. And if you want to know who they are, open the Bible, start with Genesis, and you'll see the track right through. So how do we find some solution? So there is a plan through the pain, through the problem, through the abuse of power, through the words that we have to use right here, right now. The plan is maybe give women permission to bring their full selves to the church context and invite them in, give them opportunities to lead, to grow in their leadership, affirm them. Women often feel trapped between being willing to help where needed and falling into tasks that ultimately discredit their leadership clout. And I will tell you, I've experienced this housekeeping. I was at a, a gathering of leaders, a largely men, but we were having a conversation about leaders in Canada. And somebody said to me that I could go up there and run the PowerPoint for everybody. It's like, Kathy, can you just go over there and do that thing while we have this conversation? And I was coming in as a leader 
And I was asked to do that in the room. The second thing is platform and identity. Give us opportunities to use our voice in the spaces that you are using yours. Give us opportunity to forge not only our identity, but the, but the female narrative throughout scripture and bring it to the wider church body. And then give us opportunity to use our voice and our presence in a way that we are counted as one of you. And there's a church uh, called the Imago Dei Church in the United States that actually reframed the terms egalitarian and complementarianism. And they said, we are going to call this mutualism. Mutualism. And I really appreciate that they took the time to do this. My friend and mentor, Lynn Smith, was one of the first women to influence my understanding of the gender or giftedness tension. A place to begin creating a vision for how women are to function in the church is by asking, what would the church look like if it built ministry around gifts as opposed to gender? And there's so much more I could say about that. But I think the overlying question is, would it be more equitable? And I believe it would. The kingdom of Jesus beckons men and women alike to ride the waves together, cheering one another on, coaching one another, and using their own talents to sharpen others. The church is hardly emboldened when over half of its members are standing on the shore. And in the emboldened church, all are participating, all are riding the waves of the spirit. Let's take off our blinders and open our eyes to this truth. And so that question that I asked before, and just wondering where you're sitting with that, would women walk into open doors right now? And I really think we wouldn't because it's complicated. We still don't have the confidence we need because of lack of opportunity. The men are still trying to figure out what this will mean for them in terms of what they may have to lay down. And the church as a whole is so uh, wrought with so many complex denominational stances, it's a system. And so as we work together, perhaps there is a positive solution to this issue. So Aquia, on to you, would love to hear your thoughts on how this actually translates into the area of race. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks so much for that, that was awesome. So yes, let's talk about race and faith and, and all these, uh, these topics. Um, in, the, in the letter from uh, a Birmingham jail uh, that, that we talked about earlier, you know, that was quite controversial for, for all the things that um, the Reverend uh, Martin Luther King was doing in his day were, were very controversial. And, uh, you know, as I said, 60 years later, we're still dealing with these issues of race. It hasn't gone away. Really, the question is, where do we go from here? And, and you know, what are the blind spots that the church is dealing with? And what are the solutions to dealing with those things? So I'd like to just share um, a brief statistic with you. Um, and this just layers on top of Kathy's uh, discussion about inequity, gender inequity. Uh, there was, a, uh, by Statistics Canada, um, released some, uh, a study just this past week in Canada, and it was based on salaries. 
that are earned by uh, female and male executives. And I wanted to share just what the, the disparity in the salaries were uh, based not just on gender, but also on race, because it's actually quite interesting. So a male executive making $1.1 million, if that was his salary, his female counterpart would earn approximately $495,600. So she's, she's making about 56% less than uh, her male counterpart. Now, if the female was a woman of color, her salary would be $347,100. And the, the woman of color executive is making 32% less than the uh, non-woman of color who's making 56% less than the man. So why do I share that with you? It's, it's simply to say that when we're dealing with inequities, we've got the gender inequity. And then there are other layers, depending on who you are and what life you're living, there are other layers. If you're a person of color, there will be these other layers that come. And so what do we do, right? Because Racism is here, it's part of our world, it's part of our, our, our communities. I've just spoken to you about the economic uh, disparity, there's systemic racism there, there's systemic racism in the criminal justice system. In Canada, I can um, tell you, and, and as a lawyer in, a, in another life, I was actually a criminal defense lawyer, so I worked in the criminal courts and represented uh, individuals, you know, dealing with crimes and charges and things like that. and. In our criminal justice system, uh, Indigenous people are incarcerated at six to seven times a higher rate than the provincial average. Uh, Black people are also incarcerated at much higher levels than their actual um, representation in the population. We also know that in terms of policing, there are lots of issues with regards to racial profiling, um, a black man in Toronto is 20 times more likely to be shot by a police officer than a white man would be. Young black males are more like are 50% more likely to have interactions with the police. And if they are detained, they are 100% more likely than a white young male to be kept overnight, basically to be detained and, 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 and have to stay in jail overnight and, and perhaps even longer than that. So we know that racism is real, it's systemic, it's happening, and it continues to happen. The question is, what is the church's role in all of this? You know, what are we to do about it? I'll share with you a really interesting um, conversation I had with uh, a former politician in, in Ontario, which is the province that I live in. And uh, we were talking about, he got into politics and I was asking, you know, why did you go into politics? And he told me that he went um, because of social justice, for social justice reasons. And I said, oh, how interesting. And this was in the height of the issues going on with George Floyd. And, you know, we all saw uh, the murder of George Floyd. There was the pandemic and then there were all these protests. This was all in the back during the backdrop of all of these things happening. And so the individual told me about sanctity of marriage and uh, abortion and, uh, you know, euthanasia. And, you know, he said, you know, our society was just falling apart and he felt that he needed to, you know, get into politics and be, you know, involved in all of these things and make sure that, you know, the voice of the Lord was represented and heard. And I, and so I said to him, so what do you think about 
Black Lives Matter, you know, like like all the protests and all these things that are going on. And now we're, you know, we're talking about Black Lives Matter. What, what are your thoughts on it? And he said to me without missing a beat, that is the most divisive thing ever. And it's, it's a mess and it's terrible and it's creating all these problems. And then he said, and on top of that, um, you know, the government, they're hiring all these women into positions that they're not qualified for, and they're just doing it because they, they, it's politically correct. And he was going on and on. And I said to him, actually, you know, as a Black woman, when I, I ask you about Black Lives Matter, I'm not asking you about the movement. I'm asking you about the statement. And as, and as a Christian and as, and as a man who serves God and, and follows Christ, I was really just wanting to know what you thought about the statement affirming Black people in this time and whether or not it's relevant and, and appropriate. And one of the interesting things about the conversation, the man had no idea I was Black. So when I said to him, you know, I'm a, a Black woman, I mean, I, I don't know the poor thing. He, I think he almost fell off the chair. I, you know, and he said, I had no idea you were a Black woman. I, I'm just finding this out for the first time. And, you know, it, it was a big issue for him. And look, at the end of the day, one of the, one of the blind spots, I mean, one of the things that I think in the church we need to be looking at and paying attention to is that are, are we using some kind of a hierarchy in terms of social justice issues and issues that are important and that matter and that we're going to spend time and effort um, and lend our voices to. You know, there's, there, there are certain issues that, you know, everybody's on board and says, yes, these are important. But I would say racism is a sin. And it, it, it's just as much as important. We care about the uh, lives of the unborn. But let's also care about the born. And, and, and see them through, you know, from, from womb to grave, there's a lot of life in there. And we also want, I, I would submit that as Christ followers, we, you know, Christ said he came to give us life and give us life more abundantly. And I believe that as Christ followers, we, we, we want to do that for people. Uh, we, we want to encourage our brothers and sisters who are people of color and, and watch them also enjoy the fullness of life that Christ has promised to all of us. Um, who are believers and who follow him. It's really interesting. Uh, a point I'd like to um, take your attention to is in Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 5. And Paul talks a lot about the, uh, the ministry of uh, reconciliation that we've received. But it's interesting in um, verse 15, he talks about Christ dying for us. And in so doing, because Christ has given his all to us, he says, you know, I now don't live for myself. I live for Christ. And he says, because of that, I no longer regard or judge any person according to the flesh. And one interpretation coming out of uh, that scripture suggests that Paul was talking about the external features. He no longer judges any person according to their race, their color, their nationality, their background, uh, their rank. He's, he looks at every person as somebody that Christ died for. And if Christ died for that person, his primary concern is, will that person have a relationship with Jesus Christ? And as a minister of reconciliation with a message of reconciliation, 
Am I doing all that I can do to ensure that that person hears that message? And as much as it depends on us, makes a decision for Christ and to be reconciled to Christ. That's really one of those uh, questions and issues that uh, as believers, I think we want to be thinking about and talking about. And I think it can be a blind spot in the church in terms of indifference and apathy and thinking, this is not my issue. This is not my problem. But our brothers and sisters of color are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the, the thing that affects one of us, uh, Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is an affront to justice everywhere. And we're all responsible for holding up the hands of our brothers and sisters in Christ. What are some other blind spots that um, we can think about? I would say that um, in the church, I've come across, particularly in this time of um, a racial reckoning, as you know, that's a term that's being used. I've, I've, I've come across lots of uh, believers uh, that say, you know what, I don't know what to say. And so it's not so much that I'm ap apathetic to the issues that are going on. I'm silent because I don't really know the right words to use and I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. So I'm just not gonna say anything. And I, I would really challenge us in terms of, do we know as a body what our power is? Are we, are we aware of our power and our influence as brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we recognize that through the Holy Spirit, of course, we've been given power? Kathy talked about the voice that women have and that we can step forward in that voice that we've been given. I think it's so important for each of us to remember as believers in Christ, that not only do we have power from the Holy Spirit in the spiritual sense, in our relationships, either in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities, in our churches, wherever we find ourselves, we have influence. And that influence can be used to result in actual power. Now, what do, I, what do I mean by that? If you look at the Bible and you consider certain uh, women of the Bible, if you look at Queen Esther, if you look at Abigail, who was, um, who, who was the wife of David, if you look at the servant girl for Naaman, these were three women who occupied very different levels of, of position within society. But every single one of these women had influence before people that had much higher levels of power than they did. But they were able to use their influence in every single circumstance to have that person with power act in a way that resulted in help for people that they were connected to. And so I think it's so important as believers that we, we don't become desensitized to the issue of racism. We don't become desensitized to, oh, you know, these things are going on. It's just going to be like this until Jesus returns. But that we recognize we do have power, especially for, for women, for people of color. It can be so easy to feel like, you know, the system's against me, it's working against me. There's absolutely nothing I can do in this situation. I'm just a victim of my circumstances. And I'm certainly not suggesting that privilege is not a real thing. It is, a, it is an issue and we're not all starting from the same place. There is such a thing as white supremacy. There is such a thing as white privilege. And it's important that we recognize that. But even within these contexts, 
understanding that every single one of us has the ability to use our influence within our sphere of influence and within our relationships to affect change by communicating and interacting with people that may have higher levels of power than we do. We're not twisting in the, the wind and unable to affect change. We have the Holy Spirit that is our helper and he's given us power and ability as well to make change in our circumstance. Another thing that we can consider in terms of correcting our blind spots, as I've just indicated, we all have a sphere of influence. And one of the questions is, what are we doing within our sphere of influence to, to dismantle the systems of inequity, racial inequity? So for instance, if you are in a workplace and you are um, a manager or a, a, a director or a, pre a vice president or whatever it is, are you using the power that you have in that particular position to make significant change, to make any change, to say, I'm not going to see what's happening around me if there's racial injustice and just ignore it. I'm actually going to use my power and my privilege to make a change. It's interesting because uh, there was a poll that was done in uh, 2020 in Canada, an Ipsos poll, and it found that approximately 19% of all Canadians believe that there's nothing wrong, that it's perfectly okay to discriminate um, against somebody of a different race. That's close to 7 million people, and that's a lot of people. The interesting thing about that number for, for those of us in Canada is those 7 million people, some of them will be friends, some of those people will be uh, relatives, some of those people will be work colleagues, some of those people will be doctors, will be lawyers, uh, will be teachers. They're out there and by all means, we as believers are interacting with those people at different times for different reasons. And so the question is within your sphere of influence, what are you doing to affect change? Because change only comes when we all put our hands to the plow and say, not on my watch, not on my watch, not on my watch. If my brothers and sisters who are of color are my brothers and sisters, and we, and we know that they are, and even if they're not, this is the other thing, even if you're dealing with a person who is not a believer who has not come to faith. We know that Christ died for every single person. And so there's no reason for us to look at people that are not in faith with us and say, oh, they're not believers, so it's not really an issue for me. We know that because we have this ministry of reconciliation, we have this opportunity and obligation to lend our support, our voices, our influence, our power to lift up those that are marginalized and that need our help. One of the issues is how do we present the gospel of Christ to people who are marginalized and ostracized and left out? 
How do we present that gospel if when they're experiencing these things, we're simply standing by and we're silent and we're not using our influence and we're not using our power? It makes it very difficult to be credible with this message of reconciliation if we're not actually doing anything to support what that message of reconciliation actually uh, stands for, which is that Christ died for all of us. So, so I'll just say very quickly in terms of how do we um, deal with these issues, the blind spot is really just to act. It may be uncomfortable, but acting is what brings real change. Thank you. Maybe we can go back one slide, Jewel. Um, Akuia reminded me of this, of this ultimate mission is to love Christ, know Christ and make him known in her point to how can we do this if we are standing by and not even living like Christ. And so the reflections for you to take away is who's your driving instructor in that car with your blind spot. Is he able to have you see what he sees? Who's the captain of that Titanic? What are your side view mirrors blinding you to? How do you expand your vision? What do you need to intentionally see that you've been choosing to not see? And who do you need to intentionally see? And then that last slide, I love this scripture. If we go to that very last one, then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And in this one question, Jesus is addressing all kinds of systems. He's healing on the Sabbath, which is a no-no. He's talking to a woman, which is a no-no. He's talking to a woman on the Sabbath, but not only that, he is reinforcing her and calling her up to her spiritual identity, a daughter of Abraham. And there would have been shock and awe at these words. And he's understanding that she has been bound not only by what ails her, but by a system. And he is the one that says, I'm coming to set her free. And I think that's what he wants to do for men, women, the church in issues of gender and in issues of race. And may it be so in our lifetime. Amen. We trust that this conversation you were just a part of today on our podcast would really empower you in your sphere of influence to continue to strengthen your gorgeous, brilliant, phenomenal feminine voice and strength that you have to offer your spheres of influence. We are so excited about launching Gather Voices coaching cohort for summer all the way through to the rest of 2021 to really continue to coach and champion the female voice in the church and across our nation of Canada. Why don't you consider jumping on our wait list, looking at the information, praying into whether this is your time to take the next step and really continue to grow with your 
revelation that you beautiful woman of God have an opportunity to use your voice for the sake of the kingdom in new ways in new arenas maybe for the first time or maybe it's whole new levels of influence that you are believing God is entrusting you with in this season seriously girls revival will only happen when the female church awakens to usher in humanity's welcome home with your voice and your presence so why don't you look at stepping into investing into this space called gather voices with us for a six-month journey phenomenal guests uh, coaches are coming on guest equippers you're going to meet incredible girls across our nation online from wherever you are so that all different parts of this nation can be impacted with your voice. Consider joining us. Jump on to gatherwomen.com and have a look at all that is coming up in this movement that serves you and the call of God in your life.